してる。Sorry about that. Let's,、uh, let's pray one more time.、Uh, Father God in heaven,、um, we reach out to you this morning because our world is so broken and we desperately, desperately need your grace. We pray,、uh, Father, for the victims and the family and friends of not just one, not two, but three shootings overnight here in Cleveland. And we ask God for their healing. We ask for their comfort.、And、we pray, Father, that they would know that there is a hope beyond this world and beyond this life for those who pursue the Son of God. We pray, Father. We pray for the uh, Indonesian uh, portion of the island of Borneo.、Um, we pray, Father, for the、uh, Malay there who are captivated by Islam and animism and among some of the least evangelized in Indonesia. We pray, Father, for A mass movement of souls into the kingdom of the eternal Son. We pray that those few Christians in that population who so many of them feel they need to live their lives in secret would have the boldness and the courage to witness to the glorious grace of Jesus Christ, that you would turn whole families. To his grace. We pray for those on the island who migrate there for industry and for work, and we pray that the ethnic divisions among those different peoples would be、uh, destroyed by the gospel of Jesus, and that those who are Christians there might reach out with love across those barriers to make your good news known. We pray for the remote tribes on the interior of that island. We pray that medical missions and orphanages would be、uh, a strategic way to bring the good news, but we pray also for、uh, pioneering spirits,、uh, that you would raise up laborers to go into that harvest and turn hearts and minds to Christ. Father, we pray for the Chinese Christians there on that island, that they.、Uh, Would have the, the confidence and, and the hope、um, to reach their neighbors and particularly their Chinese neighbors for the sake of Christ. Father, may we who have so much more freedom and so little to fear be emboldened to make you known where we are here in Cleveland. We pray for that and for the ministry of your word、uh, through my sermon that it might be fruitful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What if, well, let's、uh, turn.
to Titus chapter 3. We're continuing a series there in Titus. One more message after today, but we are going to take a time out to hear a couple messages from Isaiah the next two weeks, and then I'll conclude this, this series after that. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one in the seats in front of you probably. If not, you know, if you use electronic uh, Bible, that's fine. Turn, click, swipe, do what you do to get to Titus chapter 3. And we're just going to look at three verses, verses 9 through 11. Paul writes to Titus, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So I ask, what are the most controversial issues you've encountered in the churches you have attended. I hope you've not experienced too many, but I'm sure some of you have uh, faced some difficult situations, whether political contention or paint color. Um, these things aren't just regrettable, they're, they're largely inexcusable because the consistent message of the New Testament and the implicit theme of our passage this morning is that the gospel demands unity. The gospel demands unity, and our passage gives us a two-pronged approach for avoiding disunity. The approach we're given is avoidance. In fact, it's right there at the beginning, but avoid. And, and, and some of you said amen, uh, but avoidance does not mean ignoring, and avoidance doesn't mean not dealing with. Because the avoidance that Paul is talking about here is an avoidance that requires personal involvement. It's an active avoidance, we might say. It's, it's not a passive one. And the first avoidance that Paul insists on is that Titus and the Christians on Crete should avoid divisive behavior. They should not allow themselves to get entangled in activity that promotes unnecessary discord. You know, if, if you suppose you have a, an uncle who has a tendency to drink too much when he goes to the ball game, and, and when he drinks, he gets unruly, and he starts hollering at the umpires, and starts hollering at the opposing team, and booing every pickoff, and starts yelling, balk, every time the guy steps off the mound, basically annoying everyone in his section. He makes the game miserable. And you're, suppose your family is going out to a Guardians game for the weekend. Someone might tell your uncle wisely, we'd like you not to drink at the game. Your family is taking a stand to avoid controversy, to avoid creating a scene. You want to avoid the behavior. It's not so much the issue, it's the behavior. And that's closer to what's going on in this passage. We're not telling people to ignore sin. We're telling people who might get involved with sin to not do it in the first place, to avoid sin. 
And Paul, Paul names uh, four problems that could lead to disunity in the churches on Crete. He, he lists foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the, lo- the law. Now, it would be good to know what Paul's talking about and what he's not so that we can apply this standard well for our lives. So let me go through each one of these briefly. Foolish controversies are, well, they're controversies that happen to be foolish. And what I mean is he's not suggesting that all controversy is foolish. It's not like he's saying that controversy by its very nature is foolish. But many controversies are foolish, and those controversies you want to avoid. Because the, the idea of controversy, it often refers to debates of a philosophical nature, the pursuit of truth. And so in that sense, they can be very good. For example, some Jews had a controversy with the disciples of John the Baptist about the need for baptism. And later, some Christians had controversy with Paul and Barnabas about whether the non-Jewish Christians in Antioch needed to be circumcised and become ritually Jewish in order to become followers of Jesus. Those were important debates to have. One of them, Paul himself participated in. So the meaning isn't to avoid all debates. So what makes a controversy foolish then? Well, I think foolish controversies are ones that deal with either unserious questions or unserious people. And I'll give you examples of both. The example of uh, of circumcision is actually relevant because it it shows how these things can shift over time. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas were confronted by some Jewish Christians who were teaching that Gentiles, that means non-Jewish people, needed to be circumcised. And in the early days of this Jesus movement with Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus, it was a bit unclear. Did they need to become Jews first and then Christians? And what did that mean to become a Jew first? It was a serious, legitimate question. And they took that matter to Jerusalem, where the early church leaders debated the question and settled the matter that Gentiles did not need to be circumcised. And their reasoning, which was expressed by the Apostle Peter, was that if God gave his Holy Spirit to them when they were uncircumcised, then God must not see circumcision as a prereq. God was, as Peter said, no respecter of persons and became a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. The ethnic background was no barrier to God's salvation. The good news was that God saves people from their sins by a free gift through faith, not by the works they do or don't do. But as time went on, Paul dealt with this issue repeatedly for decades. It comes up directly or indirectly in letters to the churches in Galatia, to the churches around Ephesus, to the church in Rome, and through Titus to the churches on Crete. At some point, this stops being a serious question. Sure, we would understand if a brand new Jewish Christian didn't understand the implications of Jesus' salvation and needed to be taught. But a person who had been a Christian for some time should not be entertaining these debates. It was a settled matter. It wasn't up for debate 
anymore. Settled matters are a category of unserious questions. With a new Christian or an immature believer or an outsider, we will patiently discuss and show and explain, but we don't get into battles with each other over these things. The reliability of Scripture, the Trinity, how Jesus saves, these are some of the questions that we would consider settled and and no longer up for debate. Another category of unserious questions are the ones that have little bearing, maybe no bearing, on the beliefs and practices of the Christian faith. Some of these still might merit discussion for faithful edification, but they shouldn't be matters that cause division. Some Christians debate the order in which from eternity past, God issued his decrees related to the fall and his salvation. And you could find yourself being a sublapsarian or an infralapsarian or a superlapsarian. How many of you know where you fall on that spectrum? Now, could a discussion about those things and the wonder they create in our hearts about God's marvelous, eternal plan to save be edifying? Yeah, I think so. But should it be a divisive controversy? Absolutely not. We're all too familiar with stories of churches that split over carpet color or the arrangement of chairs. Those kind of things are also unserious questions. They don't help us to know Jesus better or follow Jesus more closely. Today we might be tempted by certain political questions. Not all political questions are unserious, but but many of them are. They don't make a difference in our knowledge or following of Jesus. What's the proper tax brackets we should have? I have no idea what the most God-honoring tax brackets ought to be. Should we support Ukraine a lot, a little, not at all? Should we allow the country into NATO? Those are serious political questions, to be sure. But in the church, they aren't serious questions at all. So anything that's settled in church history and anything that does not help us to grow as Christians is probably an unserious question, and it will only lead to foolish controversies. Let's talk about genealogies. This is probably a specific example of a foolish controversy related to what Paul called Jewish myths in chapter 1. We talked about this at the time, so I won't go into it as much here, but it was popular at that time for some Jews to put great emphasis on the genealogies that are recorded in the Bible. I'm talking about places like First Chronicles, where the first eight chapters are an extensive list of who begat whom. And those are important. When you come to those in your Bible reading plan, read them. There's value in those genealogies. God had those recorded for a reason. 
But we have evidence that, that some ancient Jews would make a big deal about obscure figures in those genealogies or, or create entire myths around them. It's possible that some of them were getting overly focused on their own history, their own lineage, their own branch of the Jewish family tree. But to what end? Because we're not made right with God on the basis of family legacy. Don't tell me what your parents or your great, great, great grandparents did for the church. Tell me that you are living for Jesus. In fact, Paul says elsewhere that all who share in the faith in God that Abraham had, those are sons and daughters of Abraham. So the most important aspect of our ancestry is not biological, our shared genes. It's not adoptive, a shared last name. It's spiritual, a shared faith. Paul mentions dissensions, and that's a fairly generic word that refers to fights that lead to disunity. And, and the Bible uses it as an example of the type of behavior that characterized unspiritual, worldly, non-Christian, sinful people. And so it's something that should not characterize Christians who are doing their level best to, as Paul put it in Romans, live at peace with everyone. Christians may be called to put, a, uh, called to put an end to dissension, but we shouldn't be the ones causing it. And the quarrels about the law are disputes about the fine points of Jewish law. For Paul, as we already saw, this would include debates about things like circumcision. And you know, the New Testament writers are very clear that God's moral law is still in effect. Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, honor your father and your mother. But the ritual aspects of God's law, sometimes called the ceremonial law, the law is designed to make national Israel unique among the nations of the earth, have been done away with by Christ, who makes his people stand out by the Holy Spirit, helping them to live new and holy lives. We're not marked by our refusal to eat pork or wearing two types of material in our clothing. We're marked by new hearts, changed from the inside out. There are, though, churches today that have not gotten that message. I've been confronted by uh, Christian women who will not wear pants because the book of Deuteronomy says in the old King James, the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. And it, it's like, you know that they have women's pants, right? You know that there was a long time when Hebrew men and Hebrew women both wore robes, right? But I'm sure they had men's robes and women's robes. They were styled differently. These, these are sorts of quarrels we should avoid. Should we teach? Yes. Should we counsel? Absolutely. Should, should we encourage? Should we uplift? For sure. But these things should not cause disunity. 
And, and the reason here is it's given in very stark terms. Paul says these issues are unprofitable and worthless. That's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Debating these things do not add any spiritual value to your life or anyone else's life. They do not make the church stronger. They do not help us as a church, let alone as individuals, follow Jesus. So avoid these things. That's the first prong of this two-pronged avoidance strategy. But the second, you can control you, and I can control me, but neither of us can control him. Neither of us can control her. And so what do we do if a divisive person enters the church? What do we do if someone we've known for a long time and we've loved dearly becomes divisive? That's what Paul wants to address when he writes, as for a person who stirs up division. The Greek word here for divisive is where we get the term heretic. Today we almost always use the term heretic to mean someone who teaches doctrine, beliefs, contrary to historic Christianity. But in a more general, generic sense, almost an obsolete sense, it means a divisive person. And after all, teaching contrary doctrines would be definitively divisive. And often enough, that is exactly what causes a person to stir up division, is teaching false doctrines. But a person can stir up division without getting into doctrine at all. They can do it in their politics, they can do it in their ethics, they can do it with any sort of foolish controversy. And here's our strategy warn, and then, if necessary, avoid the person. Now, the avoidance only comes after warnings occur. And, and we need to think about that. Why do we warn? And the reason is because this sort of divisiveness is fundamentally sinful. It is a denial of the gospel implicitly. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has and is reclaiming a people for himself by dying in the place of sinners and uniting those diverse sinners into a new family. And everyone who follows Jesus in faith and repentance is given new life, is given eternal life. They are spared from the consequences of their evil. They're spared from the judgment they rightfully deserve. And that is good news, great news to all who receive it. And when people within the church, the church Jesus bled for, the, the church Jesus died for, the church Jesus pleads for, as we sang this morning, he, he intercedeth, begin to divide what Jesus has brought together, it starts to look like they are no friend of Jesus at all. Instead, they begin to look like an enemy of the cross of Christ. That's really scary stuff. It's very serious. And the proper 
loving response of other Christians is to warn that person. We know that intuitively, don't we? How many times have you been at a pool and seen a sign that said, warning, no lifeguard on duty, swim at your own risk? How many times have you seen caution, bridge out, no vehicles allowed? Travelers on Ocean Gate's Titan Submersible signed a four-page release acknowledging that the trip was very dangerous and might end in a loss of life. We put up warnings like these because we understand as a society that it is only loving, only basic decency to warn a person of grave danger. And that if you do not warn someone of grave danger, we will try to make it right. We will allow you to be sued. We will allow you, in some cases, to be prosecuted criminally for your neglect of human life. If we put up warnings, at a very least, you can choose to be dangerous. You can assume the risks of your own behavior. But a warning does two things. It, it alerts you to a danger you might not have been aware of. And it emphasizes the danger if you were at any risk of minimizing it or forgetting it. You might do it anyway, but you won't do it ignorantly. When a person is divisive, we need to warn them that such behavior is not becoming of a Christian. In fact, it makes them look like they're not a Christian. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3, Paul chastises the Christians in Corinth, and he says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In fact, the unchristlike divisions were a major theme of that entire letter. And then in places like Galatians 5, he warns the Christians, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a strong warning. None of us is perfect. We all sin. But if we persist in a divisive and contentious mode of existence, we need to understand that we are behaving in a way that is not what God's Holy Spirit brings out. And so over time, a person might begin to wonder if we even have the Holy Spirit at all. And if we don't have the Spirit, then we don't have Jesus. We're not really Christians. Paul suggests warning a person once or twice, and 
you know, that is strikingly similar to the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, where Jesus suggested if a Christian sins, another Christian who is aware of it should go and show that person their sin privately. Jesus isn't interested in publicly shaming a person without cause. The hope is that the person listens to the rebuke and changes his way. But if that brother or sister does not respond to the warning, then Jesus said, take one or two others along with you and confront the person again. Part of the moral and civil part of God's law was that a matter should be confirmed by two or three witnesses. In this case, bringing two or three people together to testify to the fact that what this brother or sister is doing is in fact wrong and does in fact need to change. And hopefully, the combined weight of that testimony is persuasive if that brother or sister who has gone astray is still being led by the Holy Spirit. But if he or she still will not change course, then Jesus says to take them before the entire church. And if the testimony of the entire church does not persuade them to turn back, then Jesus instructs us to no longer treat that person like they are a part of the church to treat that person no more like they are a follower of Jesus. Treat them like they are any other non-Christian. If there's a difference between Paul's one or two warnings and Jesus' three-step process, it might just be that being a divisive person is almost by its nature a public act. It's not something that can be easily kept private or quiet. Dealing with this sort of sin almost requires a public response. If you find out that the Christian sitting next to you has been fudging on their taxes, you might counsel her privately to make it right. But if the brother next to you is picking fights with everybody around you, well, that needs to be dealt with a little bit more up front uh, and a little bit more directly. Christians are called to pursue holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit in them. We fall short, but it's why we need each other. Sometimes we're blind to our own behavior. And we have a little bit more clarity looking at others. It's why Jesus warned us about taking the log out of our own eye before we try to remove the speck from another person's life. There, there's hypocrisy in this attitude that we are plagued with so often. But if we're humble, there's a sense in which we can use that to our advantage. If we're humble, we can receive, we can welcome the correction from each other that we desperately need and mutually help each other live holy lives. That's true of every sin. But sins of divisiveness are particularly pernicious. They are particularly vile. They are particularly evil because they threaten to undermine what Christ is doing in everyone's lives, not just one person. They are like wildfires raging in the dry brush of Christian community. They have to be dealt with directly and immediately. 
we live in an age that hates confrontation. I've not lived in any other age or in any other culture, so I don't know if that's fundamentally different than a thousand years ago or whatever. Maybe people in all cultures and times were better than this. Uh, maybe they were the same. But whatever the case, for us, this one seems to be hard. And I think that's especially true when it comes to a divisive person who is stirring up chaos and is poisoning other people with silly arguments and phony debates. Because there's a fear, and, and oftentimes a legitimate fear, that that person is going to engage you in one of those debates if you try to warn them. They're going to suck you into their nonsense. They may even try to stir the pot of the community against you. And it's intimidating, and, and no one wants to be the person that has to get in the face of a divisive brother or sister. But it's essential. In this sort of situation, I think we need to be encouraged to think three different directions. First, think of the precarious spiritual position of the divisive person. They don't see how dangerously close they are to not following Jesus. Love should compel us to warn them off that edge. Second, think of the damage that can be done by that spreading wildfire if it's left unchecked. Think of your fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. Think of the things that they have given up in their lives to follow Jesus. Think of the things that they have hoped for for the sake of Jesus. Think of all of Jesus' promises to his body, to the church. And think of those brothers or sisters feeling like they need to walk away from Christ's church where all of Jesus' blessings are stacked because they are being driven away by the divisiveness of one person. Think about how that jeopardizes their salvation and jeopardizes their blessing and jeopardizes their call to holiness. Third, think about the watching world. Just as the Apostle Paul cautioned the Christians living in Corinth that Jesus was not divided but is one for his church and with his church, so we dare not give the watching world the idea that Jesus himself is factitious, that Jesus himself is divided, that Jesus himself is anything less than unifying. They already have that impression because too often our churches are involved in these inter-ecclesiastical debates, arguments between Christians within churches. Now, a lot of that is myth, and a lot of that is overblown. We gladly hold hands in solidarity with Christians who uphold the glorious gospel of Jesus, no matter what label is on their church. It's the good news of Jesus and his kingdom that unites us, even if we worship according to a different style or custom. But we have to be honest that sometimes those criticisms are legitimate. Sometimes, though, those 
debates themselves are legitimate. Sometimes those criticisms that we have of each other are honest warnings of spiritual unhealth. But other times those criticisms stem from a spirit of divisiveness in our own hearts. And let's not give a watching world any further reason to mistake the character and heart of Jesus. Let our heart and our prayer be for their salvation, and let's not be the reason they do not hear, and they do not seek, and they do not find. If after all of this warning, a person does not cease to be divisive, though, we are given a very succinct command, have nothing more to do with them. Now, I don't think you should take this in an absolute sense. I don't think Paul means that we should never talk to the person, never make eye contact with them, never do business with them again. I take this to be in the context of the church. This letter is in the context of the church. And I, and I think that indicates to us that we should no longer give the divisive person the time of day with regards to all their arguments and all their quarrels and all their fights and points of disagreement within our church doesn't mean you can't be neighborly to them. It means you can't say hi when you see them at the grocery store. But within the church, we're not going to give them the time of day. And so this is a parallel to what Paul said in verses 9 and 10. Just like we should all avoid any sort of divisive behavior and thinking in our own hearts, so we should avoid a divisive person who brings that spirit into our church community. And Paul's judgment on such a person is harsh. He says that a person is warped and sinful, and he says that the person is self-condemned. The first part of that judgment that Paul makes reminds us of what we are dealing with. Divisiveness is a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ and fundamentally sinful. It is not a minor thing. And the second part of Paul's assessment is, in a strange way, I think a consolation for us and an encouragement for those of us who find ourselves in the position where we need to confront a divisive person or when we need to turn our back on a divisive person. These types of things are hard, even if we know that we are 100% in the right, even if everyone tells us that we are 100% in the right. Our hearts might break to separate with someone whom we have loved, someone whom we have prayed with and prayed for. It feels like we're condemning them. Maybe they even gaslight you and accuse you of condemning them. But Paul says that's not true. They are self-condemned. Paul's again, I think, echoing the teaching of Jesus. You, you may be familiar with John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But are you as familiar with those 
words as you are with verse 18, the very next words in that chapter. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus did not come to condemn because we have already condemned ourselves by refusing to believe in the name of Jesus, in his character, his purpose. Those who persist in divisiveness show that they do not believe in the name of Jesus because Jesus' name, his character, his reputation, his purpose, his aims are about uniting the church to him. And anyone who would divide his church shows himself to be a person who does not know Jesus. The idea of unity is popular in our culture. It has been for a long time. We, we want everyone to just get along, to love each other, to be kind to each other. But, but sometimes those conversations forget an important fact. For there to be unity, there has to be a center of unity. I'll give you an example. Our, our solar system is is unified. Not because it contains a bunch of things that look identical to each other or are made out of the same stuff. We have rocky planets and gassy planets and planets with rings and planets with moons. And we have asteroids and we have comets. All different types of things of different sizes and different materials. But our solar system has unity because everything in this solar system is inextricably drawn to a flaming, hot, glorious center, our sun, by a force called gravity. In the same way, Christians are called to unity. But that's not a nice sentiment or a feel-good notion. It is a wide variety of very strange and different-looking people, people with different hearts and different approaches and interests and languages, but they are drawn inextricably to a flaming, hot, glorious center, the Son, Jesus Christ, by a force called the gospel. And it is good news that draws us to Jesus. And because of that, we will inevitably circle him and never get too far away from each other. What's my point? My point is that we are called to have unity in the church because the church is Jesus' body. But with those who are not connected to Jesus because they have abandoned the attractional force of the gospel, we do not have unity. In 2017, scientists discovered a strange object passing nearby. It was traveling way too fast to have come from our solar system. And they gave it the Hawaiian name Umuamua, which means something like first distant messenger, since it seemingly came from a galaxy far, far away. It's not in orbit around our sun, but it passed relatively close to the earth on its way through our solar system and it's now headed back out 
it's not a judgment against Umuamua to say it's not orbiting our sun and so not part of our unified solar system. It's just acknowledging the reality, the physics, the data points. And the same is true of a divisive person. If they're not orbiting the Son of God by the attractional force of the gospel, it, it is not judgmental to point that out. It's merely acknowledging the facts, acknowledging the reality as it is. And so this add-on from Paul that this person is self-condemned should give us confidence and courage to deal with difficult and divisive persons. We should not be intimidated by antagonistic persons who let that dictate how we respond. We can and we must warn and, if necessary, actively avoid the person. I feel like a message like this is something that a pastor might preach because he wants to single out a disruptive person and use the bully pulpit to deal with his perceived enemies and hopes that you guys take care of the problem and not me. And, and I hope you know that's not true. Um, those who have been around know that we generally preach through books of the Bible and we preach through them consecutively, passage after passage, and what comes up in the text dictates the message. So we don't come up with a message and then find a text to preach based on that so that you're hearing what Chris's hobby horse is that particular week. And I am so thankful to God that this sort of disunity is something that we have not experienced much of, if any, in the time I've been at Gateway. There are no issues that I'm aware of. At the same time, I trust that the Spirit works through our preparations, and I, and I trust that the Spirit wants us to be aware of these truths now for His good reasons. And I don't know what those reasons are. That makes me nervous. Uh, but I do know that the unity of Jesus' church is too precious to waste. As Paul wrote to the Galatians, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So let's protect our unity with this two-pronged remedy of active spiritual avoidance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that for whatever reasons in your good plans and purposes you have largely spared us over the last many years of divisiveness and disunity and foolish controversies and quarrels. 
You even spared us such nonsense as our church endured COVID, and we know that so many churches did endure foolish controversies during that season. And yet God humble us to remember that but by the grace of Jesus Christ we would be in the same boat as so much of our world. This is not our doing, it's yours. Give us the confidence and the strength by your Spirit to not rest on the former unity we've held, but to continue to pray for and to work for maintaining the unity of the Spirit as you teach us in Ephesians, as we pledge to each other in our members' covenant. And should divisiveness uh, enter our midst, God, give us the strength and courage to deal wisely and lovingly with it for the sake of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing to that Savior again.